Welcome to In Clear Terms with AARP California. Conversations on issues impacting Californians of all ages. Here's your host, Theon Gordon. Welcome to In Clear Terms with AARP California. Join us as we dive into issues and policies that impact Californians of all ages, but particularly older adults, and learn how you can connect with AARP to make our state more livable for all. I am an AARP volunteer and your host, Dr. Theon Gordon. Today, we are joined by Sarah Lenz Locke, Executive Director of the Global Council on Brain Health and Senior Vice President of Policy with AARP's Policy, Research, and International Affairs. Sarah, welcome to the show. Dr. Gordon, thank you so much. It is fantastic to be with you. Yes, and let me tell you, today in our conversation, we're looking forward to learning more about brain health and its connection to healthy aging. So let's just dive right in. But before we get to the nitty-gritty of our brain health, can you tell us in clear terms what the Global Council on Brain Health is and tell us a little bit about your role? Well, thank you for asking. It's an independent collaborative of scientists and health professionals, scholars, and policy experts from all around the world working in areas of brain health related to people's ability to think and reason as they age. And ARP convenes this group because we know people 50 and older are incredibly interested in what works and what doesn't to stay sharp as they age. As a matter of fact, we have two fantastic Californians who are on the governance committee for the Global Council on Brain Health, Dr. Duke Hahn from USC and Dr. Christine Yaffe from the University of California, San Francisco, who are really world leaders on these topics, and we're thrilled to have them. I'm lucky to be the executive director, so I get to learn from these smart people and engage with them on these incredibly interesting topics. Wow, that's amazing. And sounds like you're doing a lot of really good work with a lot of great people. Now that we know a little bit about the Global Council on Brain Health, let's learn a little about what brain health is about. And most people think about brain health and immediately take their minds to dementia, Alzheimer's, and cognitive impairment. Can you break down the difference between those? Sure. That's one of the most common questions that gets asked. Dementia is an umbrella term. It's a term for a group of conditions or symptoms that impact our thinking skills, and it's got to be severe enough that it interferes with your daily life. So symptoms of dementia are commonly seen as problems with memory, language, perhaps impaired social skills or thinking abilities. But Alzheimer's is a specific disease. It's only one of the types of diseases that can cause dementia. It's the most common type. Often it presents with vascular dementia or other types. But Alzheimer's is the specific brain disease, and normally the early symptoms are changes in your memory, thinking, and reasoning skills that gradually gets worse over time. As the disease progresses, 
confusion and behavior change comes more prominent and more common. So would dementia be the overarching and then Alzheimer's is a specific illness within dementia? Yeah, that's exactly right. So you might have heard about Bruce Willis. He just talked and let people know that he's been diagnosed with frontal temporal dementia, or FTD. There's also dementia caused by Lewy bodies. So it's a variety of different diseases that can cause dementia, Alzheimer's disease being the most common one. The other thing that I wanted to mention is you asked about cognitive impairment because people want to know the differences, right? And cognitive impairment is an early stage of memory loss. People talk about it as mild cognitive impairment. It's more than the normal changes that occur with aging. The symptoms aren't as severe as the diseases like Alzheimer's. People can still take care of themselves and do their normal daily activities, but it's still problems with memory or thinking. Absolutely. And I think every now and then when we have our memory moments where we can't remember something, would cognitive impairment fall under dementia as well? No. So dementia is got to be severe enough that it interferes in your daily activities. Cognitive impairment is sort of that stage before that happens if you go on to have disease. So there's normal cognitive aging, there's cognitive impairment, and then there's dementia. And cognitive impairment is kind of in between. It's neither the disease state or normal aging. Okay. Well, that makes it very clear. So tell us now, because the one that we hear about the most is dementia and Alzheimer's. But tell us how dementia impacts us. Well, in lots of ways. And unfortunately, most of them are not good. When you have one of the diseases that causes dementia, it really begins to interfere with your daily life and your activities. It may mean loss of control for your emotions, your personality could change. It really can impact our families, our friends, and your relationships. People often express great frustration because of that feeling of a loss of control. And unfortunately, because dementia refers to progressive diseases and it doesn't have a cure, it has a tremendously negative impact on both the person living with dementia and the people around them. It's actually the seventh leading cause of death around the world and a major cause of disability and dependency on others. But one thing that I want to make sure that I state right up front is that just because it is a really serious disease with lots of problems doesn't mean that you can't live well and still have dementia. Many people can live with these conditions for 20 years or more. And it's about learning to manage it like you would any other chronic disease. So it's got a tremendous impact, but we hopefully will be able to explore a little bit more about some of the things that you can do to improve your quality of life. Okay. Well, I don't want our audience to be afraid because this information is actually to help us. And what I really appreciate about what you just said is how it impacts not just the person that's dealing with it, but the community around it. And as our population ages, 
I know that it's going to have a tremendous impact on communities, but I, I kind of want you to share a little bit about that as well. In California, our aging population is growing rapidly. And by 2030, one quarter of the state's population will be 65 or older. So tell us who is directly being impacted by dementia. And as the population ages, how is this going to impact our community? Well, I want to pause there and say it is fantastic that one quarter of California's population will be 65 or older. And that's, think about the victories of public health and medicine to get us to the point where people's life expectancies are that you could be 65 or older for almost a quarter of the population. So I want to start there. Uh, Yes, that was my goal. (laughs) I'm going to make it over 65. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. People complain about having birthdays. I'm like, bring them on, baby. Yes, yes that's me. <laughs> but dementia is affecting a lot of people. And in the United States, the estimates are about 7 million people are living with dementia. And we think that that's actually an underestimation. But that number is expected to triple by 2050 because wow. of the changing demographics. And it's incredibly expensive. Many families can't afford the care that is associated and needed for people living with dementia. So costs in the United States are estimated to be about $300 billion a year, and that's expected to triple to a trillion by 2050. So we definitely have to get our arms around that. And as we were talking about, it's not just affecting the person, but the caregivers, too. They're about 15 million caregivers living in the United States in order to care for people who are living with dementia. So it is a huge impact and we need to prepare for it so that when we get these large numbers of people who are older, we're prepared to deal with it. And I've been interviewed and talked about sort of technology. And there's a lot that we can do from a technological point of view to help out on these caregiving issues, whether it's communications or a variety of ways. You know, the future is bright, but we have to plan for it. And we have to develop our communities in such a way that it can support people. Yeah, I believe we're going to have to have a community of caregivers actually each helping each other. I think about how my parents and my parents' siblings grew up and they were in a community together. So everyone was right there. And if my mom wasn't scolding me about something, one of my aunts or uncles certainly could. (laughs) So I think we're going to have to have many more communities like that. I think we've grown into communities of isolation and individuation and everyone wants their own. And it's probably time for us to come back together and do some community caregiving. So I I love the idea that we're going to all be in this together (laughs) shortly. Now, you have written on dementia disproportionately impacting specific groups, particularly women and people of color. Can you speak more on this? And also, how are these groups impacted more and maybe why? I am so glad you asked that question. African Americans have dementia at twice the rate of white Americans and Hispanics at one and a half times those of white people. But if you look at those groups, you'll notice across every demographic, women are the ones who are most disproportionately impacted. So in any given community, 
two-thirds of the people who have dementia are women, and two-thirds of them are the caregivers for people living with dementia. So we have to address the issues. And in fact, the Global Council on Brain Health is working right now on a how do we build equity around brain health so that we can solve for this disproportionate impact that we see. One of the reasons that we think that these groups are more impacted is that the social determinants of health have a tremendous difference in the outcomes for people in all ways, whether it's heart disease or diabetes. We know that these affect your health outcomes. And so why would we expect it to be any different when it comes to your brain health? So figuring out how we can live in better communities with healthier options, more available with better health care to address some of the underlying causes. We know there's a huge relationship between heart disease and diabetes and brain health. So getting your blood pressure under control through healthy diets and through medications are key to reducing risk for dementia. And I know that we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but we have to make sure that we're addressing the needs of people in community and making sure that we have culturally tailored messages so that it resonates with people. You can't just throw out solutions and expect it to work for everybody. So that's the reason that we're particularly interested in trying to address the fundamental reasons why there is a disproportionate risk. Yes, yes. It's pretty alarming that two-thirds of women and then also just the black and brown population, the numbers and, and how high they are. I believe for women, it is because we wear that S on our chest. And I'm not talking about super. I'm talking about stress. We get a lot of stress going on and that stress-related things weigh us down. And boy, that's something that I think we have to address. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. We did a report on on women and dementia specifically, and we talked about really some of the fundamental issues, for example, lack of quality education or as much education for women, lack of economic opportunity. And these things start from childhood and accumulate disadvantage over time. And when you look at people who are more resilient, it tends to be people with higher levels of education. And so women who are not only under stress because they tend to have social or economic disadvantages, from a financial point of view, you can see mm-hmm. differences in income and responsibilities. You know, and it's funny, if you look at who's coming into healthcare dealing with dementia, it turns out it's usually the woman bringing their husband or their male relative or friend in because they start to notice differences and, and pay attention. And they themselves don't have that same level of caregiving given to them. And so really, your your point about stress and the variety of ways that manifests plays a large role in these disparities. Yes, yes. So as we think about this and the disparities and the dementia and cognitive impairment, 
What are some of the challenges that we find around brain health and keeping the brain healthy? Well, unfortunately, our healthcare system is rife, as are individuals, with stigma around dementia. And it's playing a large role. ARP did a survey recently where we asked some of the same questions to adults 40 and older and healthcare providers. And we found out that healthcare providers were even more stigmatizing of the diseases than the patients that they were serving. Lots of times they assumed that people didn't want to be diagnosed or didn't want to talk about it. And so they're not even effectively approaching people and getting baselines of sort of where people are. So there's a tremendous opportunity for changing healthcare providers' perceptions and the way that they interact with people. First and foremost, although most healthcare providers would give a diagnosis and actually uh, tell people about it, we found that there were some healthcare providers who were reluctant to even tell the person that they had dementia, even once they diagnosed it. So it's a real problem. And some of the challenges around brain health is people assume that Medicare or Medicaid will be there for you to provide long-term care. Well, turns out that is not a good long-term care system. And we really need to bolster our long-term care systems in order to support people as they can live into their 80s, 90s, and, and this disease becomes more prominent. Yeah, and I think you've hit it on the head, the healthcare system, absolutely. But then also that educational component. How can we reduce our risk to brain health? What are some of the educational things, maybe the pillars of brain health? What what can we do? I would say that ARP talks about the six pillars of brain health. We know we can reduce risks for cognitive decline. There are certain things that you don't do, and then there are certain things you can do. And so I think we've gotten messages about not smoking, but some people still smoke. So things like don't hit your head. (laughs) I mean, concussion increases your risk. So there are certain things that you don't want to do. But we like to think about what are the modifiable lifestyle factors you can change. You can't change your age. You know, age does increase your risk. But societal changes that encourage healthy lifestyles and promote cognitive well-being, that is huge. We talk about the six pillars. I'm going to lay them all out for you. Ongoing exercise, probably the most important. Stress management. We talked a little bit about that already, Dr. Gordon engaging the brain, so you're exercising your brain along with your body, social interaction, and a wholesome diet and adequate sleep are the six pillars. We have a an acronym that we at ARP use called BE MORE. So I'm going to underline it and repeat them so that hopefully it'll stick. B, be social, because if there is Like we talked about how isolation is a problem and communities and engagement is so important. Being social has a tremendously important impact on your brain health. In fact, people who are socially isolated have a 50% greater risk of dementia. So be social. The E is engage your brain. We talked a little bit about exercising your brain, but challenging it, discover new things, Continually learning. These are the things that can make a difference. M for manage stress. Everybody's got stress, but 
it's key the way that you manage it and learn how to deal with it. Managing stress is an important one. O is ongoing exercise. It's not just about getting out and doing your aerobic activity, although we recommend 150 minutes a week or 20 minutes a day, however you, you want to do that, but moving continuously. So hopefully you, you're listening to the podcast and you're going out for a walk with a set of, of <laughs> earbuds, right? Restorative sleep is the R getting about seven to eight hours a day. You don't have to get it all at once. As you get older, sometimes it gets more challenging to sleep. So figuring out how to get seven or eight hours a day. And if you miss one, you know, once a week, it's not a problem. But if you're really lacking sleep, you'll notice right away how it affects your thinking skills. Mm -hmm. And finally, the last one, everybody's favorite, E for eat right. All right. These are great. I love the be more. And I just want to say it again to our community. I kind of jotted it down and maybe give an example for each. You're going to have to help me with that. But being social and that can just be hopping on the phone with someone going out and maybe doing one of the other ones with people like walking with someone, a way to be social and then engaging the brain. And I love engaging the brain. My newest engagement is I am trying to brush my teeth with my left hand. And it is pretty funny because I'm right-handed. And so I learned that you can change some of those cognitive things that are happening with you, any impairments, by switching the way you do things. Make your brain work on the other side. So there's an exercise on that one. And then we have managing stress. How do we manage stress? I got to get that one down. (laughs) Yeah. Managing stress. It's the other pillars, really. Exercise, sleep, all of those really support that managing stress. If you're getting the exercise, if you're engaging with others and you're getting restorative sleep, you're well on your way to managing stress. And then the ongoing exercise, I invite anybody who's in the Los Angeles area Meet me over at Ingold Park at 7 a.m. Every morning, someone is out there to walk with you in the park. And so we have a group of people that get together and we do that. And it's a lot of fun. We meet new people every day. So that helps with the social part, too. Then we have our restorative Restorative sleep. Yeah, that one's a little tough, but we think about it because quality of your sleep is as important as quantity. So restorative sleep is one where you're getting enough rest. Let's get some rest, people. Put your alarm clock on, turn off all the devices and go to sleep. I understand the best way to really go to sleep for those who are sleep challenged is to make your room very dark. Don't leave the television on. Don't have the lights on. Make it dark and hibernate like a bear. Sleep like the bears. And then our last one is eating right. So eating right. Tell us a little bit about how we can eat right And what are some of the things we can eat to help our brain? So it's probably everybody's favorite topic when we talk about this. And we categorize it in foods that you encourage, foods you eat in moderation, and foods that you want to discourage. Because we're never going to say, don't ever eat ice cream. You know, like that would be such a bummer, right? And you don't have to. It's about your overall diet. So you want to encourage leafy green vegetables, things like fish. The omega-3 fatty acids are thought to be incredibly helpful for your brains. And diets that are rich in green vegetables, colorful fruits, those are the kinds of things that are tremendously supportive. 
foods that you want to eat in moderation. You need calcium and those kinds of things, but choose low-fat varieties rather than high-fat varieties because a heart-healthy diet is a brain-healthy diet. The foods that you want to discourage are salt, sugar, lots of high-saturated fats. Those are things that you want to really discourage and only eat occasionally. To check out more of this, I would recommend going to the Global Council on Brain Health. We have an entire report on food and how to have and sustain a healthy diet. We could probably do a podcast just on that alone. We absolutely can. So I want you to tell us, if we do these things, tell me, how protective are they? Are they really effective? So what we can say is, even if you do all of these things, and you do it all of the time, it's no guarantee that you won't get dementia. But we know that these modifiable lifestyle factors can reduce your risk by up to 40%. If we had a medication that could do that, we would be buying it like crazy. <laughs> it really is a tremendous boon to your health to do this. And if we can even reduce risk and delay onset for a period of five years, we can cut the incidence of dementia in half. That would just help families, individuals tremendously. And so these lifestyle factors taken together, it's thought that the more that you do of them and the more consistently you apply them, the better off you are. But one of the greatest things that I've learned about since working with the Global Council now for about six years, it's never too late to start. It's never too early, but it's never too late. So even if you are living with dementia, these same six pillars will improve your quality of life and help your brain, even if you are already living with the disease. So we can reduce risk, we can delay onset, and we can improve quality of life through these measures. Well, improving the quality of life is the number one thing we want to do. And I know that in AARP, we actually are working along with California through the master plan for aging. And this is through the state and it's working to prepare for the aging population. And one of the five bold goals is health reimagined, which hones in on brain health and dementia related services. So our listeners can learn more about that at mpa.aging.ca.gov. Or of course they can listen to in clear terms and hear more about it as well. So Sarah, before we wrap up, is there any last minute items you want to touch on? We could talk all day about this. <laughs> I tell you, I'm really enjoying it. I am too, Dr. Gordon. I would say the last thing I want to leave our listeners with is that cognitive decline is not inevitable as we age. You know, it is a common misperception. About 60% of people 40 and older think that it's likely they will get the disease or that they will have cognitive decline. Remember, there are things you can do about it. You can modify your risk. Prevention and empowering people to live well is key. 
I love it. Empowering people to live well. We're going to do that through the Be More acronym that you taught us. And, and that just involves really getting involved, managing our stress by doing all the different things we can do. Exercise, eating right, getting our rest, being social, all of those things. Remember, we can all be more. And Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on In Clear Terms with AARP California. It's my pleasure, Dr. Gordon. And thank you so much for being a volunteer with AARP. I think you're proof that it's fun. It really is fun. I love doing this and I love meeting all of these wonderful and fantastic people who teach us how to age well. Sarah, thank you for joining us on In Clear Terms with AARP California. Again, we have had the pleasure of speaking with Sarah Lynn's Locke on brain health. In future episodes, we look forward to hosting experts who shed light on critical issues in our state, discuss how AARP California is working to ensure the voice of those ages 50 plus is heard, and how you... Our listeners can learn more and act on these important decisions. Thank you for listening to In Clear Terms with AARP California.